Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled Optimizing Guideline Recommended Heart Failure Treatment at Transitions of Care is provided by University of Cincinnati in partnership with Clinical Care Options, LLC, and is supported by educational grants from Boringer Engelheim Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to today's CCO Continuing Education webinar. My name is Robin Black, and I'll be moderating today. This webinar is titled Optimizing Guideline Recommended Heart Failure Treatment at Transitions of Care. This program is brought to you by the University of Cincinnati in partnership with Clinical Care Options and is supported by educational grants from Behringer Ingerheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Joining us today are our expert faculty, Dr. Javed Butler, president of the Baylor Scott and White Research Institute in Dallas, Texas, and distinguished professor of medicine in the Department of Cardiology at the University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi, and Dr. Michelle Kittleson, professor of medicine in the Department of Cardiology at the Smith Heart Institute at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Full information on our faculty disclosures are listed here. The objectives for this program are listed here. Now I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Butler, who's going to get us started with a few questions to tell us a bit about you and your colleagues. Dr. Butler? Great. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely a pleasure to be with uh, all of you here today. So let's start the program and let's uh, start with some general question. So again, thank you very much for uh, uh, everybody joining us uh, today. I will start off the discussion with uh, general comments about epidemiology and uh, what the guidelines are saying. So from an epidemiologic perspective, uh, heart failure in the United States is a big problem, no matter how you look at the data. If you look at the incidence rate, you're talking about over three quarters of a million new patients that are being diagnosed with heart failure on an annual basis. If you're looking at the prevalence rates, uh, we are talking about uh, uh, hitting almost 6 million people uh, in U.S., and if you look at the outcomes perspective at the time of diagnosis, the prognosis is really as bad as many forms of common cancer. We're looking at about a 50% five-year mortality, about a million hospitalizations annually with, the, with heart failure as a primary discharge diagnosis, another 2 million or so where heart failure is a contributory diagnosis. Not those that not, not that those numbers are not concerning enough. Another issue is that the risk factor for heart failure uh, in the population is increasing, right? So hypertension, diabetes, obesity, overall the population is aging as well. And then also we are doing good with acute and, and, and complex care for valvular heart disease, for ischemic heart disease. And all of these things are leading to more people living with heart failure. So as bad as those epidemiologic figures were that I just went over, uh, the, the trajectory is actually also going in the wrong direction and the prevalence of the disease, both for men and women, is actually increasing. And then finally, uh, all of these things sort of eventually have a issue with cost uh, that both the patients bear and the society bears. So about $32 billion of care. This is uh, 2013 uh, data. 
that is projected to increase by 70 billion by 2030. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's not a surprise to anyone. The fact that about uh, 80% or so of this cost is because of hospitalizations and recurrent hospitalizations, that there's a lot of focus on reducing the risk of recurrent hospitalizations, both from a quality improvement perspective, but also the Medicare penalties are also targeted to a higher rate of readmission. So hospitalization and post-discharge outcomes are a specific uh, focus, both for clinicians and the regulators uh, as well. And I gave you the general figure uh, that there is a higher risk of mortality, but that risk for mortality goes substantially higher if you actually get hospitalized or if you are an older person. So the prognosis is even worse. And each subsequent admission further worsens that prognosis. So this is, you know, again, not a surprise to our audience members. Uh, this is the commonly what we see that a person remains stable for some time. But once they get hospitalized, there it starts a, a slippery slope where one hospitalization begets more hospitalizations and you have a higher risk of both subsequent hospitalizations and mortality. So in a way, the way we are thinking about the journey of a heart failure patient is depicted on this slide. First, we have some risk factors for heart failure, but we don't have heart failure. Then is the the, the second phase or the orange uh, box there in the, in the on, on the left. Uh, you develop heart failure. You're at a very high risk because you have the syndrome of heart failure, but you're not on any therapy. Uh, then we give them the guideline-derived medical therapy, device therapy. The risks goes down, but but uh, notice that the risk never completely goes away, as if you did not have heart failure. So on medical therapy, the risk mitigates substantially, but there is residual risk for which we need to find novel therapies. But then this starts the cycle of worsening heart failure, hospitalizations. You know, the patients who was relatively stable, really not complaining of any symptoms or or any worsening. Uh, it's now starts coming up and saying, you know, I, I just don't feel the same. And then you add, you know, go up on the dose of diuretics, add a second diuretic, start tinkering with other medication. Because what you're trying to do is to bring that patient back from that worsening heart failure risk profile back into that green box. Because if we don't do that, then they progress to advanced heart failure, where they become refractory to medical therapy. And now we are talking about giving them uh, transplants or VAD and, and, and stuff like that. So the best time to treat the patient is actually before they develop worsening heart failure so that you can prevent worsening heart failure to begin with. But once they do develop worsening heart failure, once they do get hospitalized, it's really important to realize that there's a fundamental change in the trajectory of the disease and that optimization of therapy is very important. Now, those are some, some uh, uh, sobering statistics, but there is good news. And the good news is that there has been considerable progress that has been made. And that progress in terms of the clinical trial data, the regulatory approval, and finally, the guideline recommendations now actually gives us a lot of opportunities to improve the outcome for our patients. So again, I won't go to, into the entire guidelines, but these are the latest American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and the Heart Failure Society of America guidelines. And if you just focus on the leftmost uh, uh, recommendations, uh, the first step, and that is to give the quadruple medical therapy with RNA beta blocker, MRA, and an SGLT2 inhibitors, and of course, diuretics if somebody is congested uh, per se. So for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, we can talk, uh, by giving this combination therapy, we can substantially improve the outcomes for uh, our patients. But the good news is that not only 
these therapies improve outcomes substantially. Then there are some other layers as well, like device therapy. But that now we are accumulating data for benefit from these therapies, not only in patients with heart failure, with reduced ejection fraction, but also patients with heart failure with mildly reduced and preserved ejection fraction. Not as a strong data with beta blockers and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, but the other classes of therapies like SGLT2 inhibitors and, and MRAs and RAS blockers uh, in secondary analyses of some of the trials also show benefit that has not been translated into guideline recommendations as well. So we are not completely impotent against these uh, 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 data in terms of the poor prognosis, but there are a lot of things that we can do to improve the patient's outcomes. The problem is that although we do have these opportunities to improve the outcomes, if you look at the registry data, a lot of the patients are not on combination therapy. A lot of the patients are getting one or the other therapy, maybe two, but the outcomes really improve when we give all of these therapies in combination. But the data suggests that about one in four patients is getting the combination therapy with triple therapy. These are the data from before the SGLT2 inhibitors became class one recommended therapy. Uh, so the quadruple therapy, you can imagine, is even uh, given to less patients. So that's one problem. The second problem is that it takes months and years the way we give these therapies before the patients get optimized on GDMT, if they get optimized. And that's another problem because the data suggests that the benefit from all of these therapies are accrued uh, within a matter of weeks. And by delaying the therapy, by not giving the therapy, we are putting, the, putting the, our patients at high risk, but even by delaying it, uh, uh, the patient's uh, condition is worsening. And perhaps if we can give comprehensive therapy and give comprehensive therapy early, we can improve the outcomes for our patients. Registry data also suggests that in the long run, there are no significant changes in the trend, even if somebody gets hospitalized. But interestingly enough, the combination therapy not only is tolerated, but is actually facilitates each other as well. So for instance, if you're congested, you're not going to tolerate beta blockers, but ARNI and SGLT2 inhibitor will make you diurese and make you a little bit more tolerant to beta blocker therapy. If you're at risk for hyperkalemia, maybe you won't tolerate MR. But SGLT2 inhibitors lower the risk of hyperkalemia and perhaps increase tolerability with the use of an SGLT2 inhibitor. So combination therapy is not only not difficult to achieve, but perhaps sometimes can enable each other as well. And before I hand over to Dr. Kittleson to take over the presentation, I want to also emphasize that hospitalization is not only an important point uh, in terms of the change in the trajectory of the disease, bad prognosis, needing uh, for the patients to get all the appropriate therapies, but also it's a great time to initiate therapies because you don't have this 10, 15 minute outpatient visit. You have three or four days. There's a larger team, nurses, pharmacists, but the patient is in a teachable moment as well. And there are data with a lot of chronic diseases, including heart failure, that therapies that are initiated in the hospital setting have the best chance of long-term prescription and adherence. And even if we make the plan, uh, sometimes those plans fall through in the transitions uh, and therapies don't get started. So hospitalization in that sense is really, really important uh, point to optimize therapy. So I will hand it over now to Dr. Kittleson. 
Hi there, Michelle Kittleson. Delighted to be here to take over from Dr. Butler's fantastic overview to talk about initiation of treatment during or following heart failure hospitalization. Um, because everything's more interesting when we talk about a patient, let's talk about a case. SK, a 56-year-old woman with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, EF 25%, is admitted to the hospital with decompensated heart failure. She's responding to IV furosemide with improvement in symptoms, heart rate 65, blood pressure 110 over 60, K4.5, creatinine 1.3, EGFR 58. Current meds, furosemide, cubitrol, valsartan, carbetalol, spironolactone. So when we think about it, the ACC AHA guidelines, heart failure guidelines, when it comes to guideline-directed medical therapy during hospitalization, tell us that GDMT should be continued, should not be routinely discontinued, should be initiated, and if it stops, should be reinitiated. And we think about the four pillars that we cannot reinforce enough to you, the RNA, the beta blocker, the MRA, and the SGLT2 inhibitor. So let's go through these one by one and see if I can convince you why all of these are so important. What is the data to tell us why these are so important? Let's start with the Paradigm HF study. 8,400 patients, symptomatic HEFREF, randomized to Secubitril Valsartan, the ARNI, versus Enalapril, the ACE inhibitor. Secubitril Valsartan in 2014 knocked the ACE inhibitor off its throne. The ACE inhibitor established for HEFREF therapy back in 1987, so the first time in decades. A reduction in cardiovascular death, reduction in heart failure hospitalization, ARNI superior to ACE inhibitor. The guidelines reinforce this by telling us that an ARNI is superior to an ACE inhibitor, is superior to an ARB. An ARNI is recommended, ACE only when an ARNI is not feasible, and an ARB only if you're intolerant to an ACE and a use and uh, and a use of an ARNI is not feasible. So, and the guidelines go so far as to say, if your patient is already on an ACE or an ARB, Replacement by an ARNI is recommended to further reduce morbidity and mortality. Now, you may be asking yourself, what about in the hospital? Well, use of, of the ARNI in hospitalized HEFREF, we now have two trials, Pioneer HF and Transition HF, both taking patients with HEFREF hospitalized for decompensated heart failure and showing us that it is safe to have inpatient initiation of the ARNI with no difference in worsening renal function, hyperkalemia, symptomatic hypotension, angioedema. We know that this is safe. So these guidelines apply not just to outpatients, but to inpatients. Now, the other important medication we need to talk about is the magical and mysterious SGLT2 inhibitors. They're initially touted as diabetes drugs. We know that they cause glucosuria, which leads to better control of hyperglycemia. They also cause naturesis, diuresis, which leads to an improvement in volume. They also have these other effects, reduction in oxidative stress, fibrosis, inflammation. Now, what you might not know is that when we think about the SGLT2 inhibitors, we actually have to thank rosiglitazone. Remember rosiglitazone, the thiazolidine dione? approved by the FDA in the mid-2000s for treatment of diabetes because it improved a surrogate endpoint, hemoglobin A1c, and then lo and behold, post-marketing trials and observational studies showed an increase in heart failure risk, which led the FDA to then mandate that any drug approved for diabetes 
didn't just improve a surrogate endpoint, had to document safety for cardiovascular outcomes. This was probably bad news for the drug manufacturers because it would mean a lot of very expensive trials, but that's what led to the important SGLT2 inhibitor cardiovascular trials where patients with type 2 diabetes and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and or risk were randomized to these new SGLT2 inhibitors versus placebo. And Enfereg, Canvas, Declare Timmy 58, Verda CV, these drug companies got so lucky. Can not only were these medicines safe, the SGLT2 inhibitors were also effective at reducing cardiovascular events, but even more unexpected, reducing heart failure hospitalizations. So here you have SGLT2 inhibitors reduce heart failure in patients with diabetes who don't even have heart failure makes you wonder, what about in diabetic patients with heart failure? And here's where the clinical trial architects took a genius leap. What about in patients with heart failure who don't even have diabetes? And that led to the important SGLT2 inhibitor heart failure trials. DAPA-HF, the shot heard round the world. Symptomatic HEFREF, no diabetes requirement for study entry reduction in cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. This trial came out September 2019, and less than a year later, the FDA had extended the indication of dapagliflozin to include heart failure patients without diabetes based on the strength of this evidence. Emperor HF, a little less dramatic, there was a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations. Is it a class effect? Absolutely, there's a class effect here. I believe DAPA, EMPA, whatever your patient can best afford or access is the right medication for them. If you look at the fine print of EMPA HF, you see that the median EF was lower. The median nt p was higher. The point estimates for event rates in the placebo group was higher. It was a sicker population, but there was still benefit. Now, the importance of soloist WHF and EMPULSE Tell us what happens when you start the SGLT2 inhibitor in the hospital. We don't care about the EF here, just hospitalized for heart failure. How do these patients do? And we see a reduction in heart failure hospitalizations and visits. We see a reduction in combined endpoints. So what does it tell us? It tells us that in-hospital initiation is safe. And the guidelines reflect this by giving a strong indication for SGLT2 inhibitors in our patients. So that concludes my segment. We're gonna hand it back to the awesome Dr. Butler to continue. Well, that was a terrific overview. Now let me take a couple of minutes as well and talk about two other medication classes uh, for the management of these patients. So one, remember I showed you the, the natural history or the trajectory of a person who develops heart failure and then there was this term I use, worsening heart failure. So the four foundational therapies, beta blockers, MRA, SGLT2 inhibitors, and RNE are for all patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. And the question is that what if you start getting into trouble? So you're on an optimal medical therapy, but yet, you know, you're not doing well. You're coming into the hospital. Is there any other option as well? So that was tested, that patient population of worsening heart failure was tested with this new therapy called Vericiguart, which is a uh, soluble guanylate cyclase 
uh, stimulator. So we know that patients with heart failure have high oxidative stress and they have nitric oxide deficiency. And what Vericigua does is that it binds directly to soluble guanylate cyclase and in the even in the absence of nitric oxide can produce CGMP, cyclic GMP, which is a cofactor for multiple enzymatic actions in the body. So in effect, what this drug does is that it tries to mitigate the effect of oxidative stress on the body. So the patient population that was tested in this trial called the Victoria trial were patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction who had recent worsening heart failure. So either hospitalization within the past six months or requiring outpatient IV diuretics within the past three months. What we learned from this trial that in this this group of patient population already very well treated at baseline by giving the very CQR therapy, there was a 10% relative risk reduction for the patient. So first, I would say, just notice the vent rate in the placebo arm. Despite about 90% RAS inhibitor, 90% beta blocker, and about 70% MRA use, we're talking about 35% one-year event rate for mortality or hospitalization. It's a really high-risk group. And then the second issue is that uh, there was a statistically significant 10% relative risk reduction, but you may have a gut reaction saying, well, you know, all the data that we heard about the foundational therapy uh, from Dr. Kittleson, you're talking about good 20, 25% relative risk reduction, and this 10% relative risk reduction is not as robust. But remember that 10% relative risk reduction in a higher risk population leads to a higher absolute risk reduction. In other words, this 10% relative risk reduction, as you can see in the box on the right, translated into 4.2% absolute risk reduction. How does that stack up across other trials? So first, we just simply cannot compare trials like this because these are different inclusion exclusion criteria, different background therapy. But just to give you a subjective idea of the absolute risk reduction for heart failure hospitalization and for cardiovascular death across all the recent trials, it gives you a little bit of an idea of what 4.2% absolute risk reduction would mean. Also, remember that we also said that those patients that have developed advanced heart failure, they really become refracted to medical therapy. And indeed, we found that signal uh, in the Victoria trial that those patients with extremely high anti-proBNP, and I'm talking about over 8,000 anti-proBNP in the outpatient setting, post-discharge, persistently high, those patients actually did not benefit. But those with anti-proBNP, less than uh, uh, 8,000, there was a mortality benefit seen as well. So that's one option we have for patients who are not doing well despite guideline-drive medical therapy. The second option to keep in mind is IV iron replacement in iron-deficient patient. Now, how does iron replacement help? The simple answer is, well, if you have iron deficiency, you develop iron deficiency anemia, and with iron deficiency anemia, you have decreased oxygen carrying capacity. So that makes total sense. Heart failure patients need oxygen, and um, uh, iron deficiency anemia is a problem. 
But what we sometimes forget is that iron is an essential cofactor for many enzymatic function uh, across the body, including ATP generation. So even in the absence of anemia per se, iron deficiency itself is associated with poor functional capacity, higher risk of hospitalization, and higher risk of mortality. There were two trials done in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction where patients with heart failure got IV iron replacement. And in both trials, there was significant improvement in symptoms, quality of life, and functional capacity as assessed by six-minute walk test. Regardless whether you had anemia or not, both the trials basically showed that there was improvement regardless if your hemoglobin is less than 12 or greater than 12. Again, uh, highlighting this issue that we mentioned that uh, iron repletion is important regardless whether you have anemia. What about in the hospital setting? So that was tested in this trial called Affirm AHF, where ferric carboxymaltose was given to patients. The p-value was 0.059. It really was at the borderline, but like many trials recently, this trial was affected by COVID pandemic. And when the COVID pre-specified analysis was done, the p-value was less than 0.05. But overall, there was about a 21% relative risk reduction uh, in the risk of hospitalization mortality, primarily driven by hospitalization. And these results were then corroborated by another trial with a different iron preparation, ferric derizomaltose, that also also showed reduction uh, in patients who had iron deficiency, very much like the same, narrowly missed the p-value. Again, lots of COVID issues, but COVID pre-specified analyses were a part of the statistical analytic plan. And again, if you include that, one can see that the results were significantly in benefit of iron replacement. So now we have data not only for functional capacity, quality of life, but also for clinical outcomes as well. So Dr. Kittleson, I will hand it back to you. Excellent. Thank you so much. So you've heard about the four pillars, the ARNI, the beta blocker, the mineralocorticoid antagonist, aka aldosterone antagonist, and the SGLT2 inhibitor. You've heard about the other extras that we need to consider and select patients, the very sequat, the iron repletion. Bottom line, we can save a lot of lives. And the stepwise in inclusion of all these therapy, quadruple therapy, leads to a 73% reduction in all-cause mortality, absolute risk reduction of 26%. That's extraordinarily high. That's an amazing effect size. Our patients need these therapies. So we have entered what we like to call this new era in heart failure. If you look at the guidelines for patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, you establish the diagnosis, you address the congestion, you initiate the four pillars, then you target, you titrate to target doses. If I haven't reinforced that enough, remember that quadruple therapy saves lives. If you're a purist, you might say, well, you don't have a randomized trial of quadruple therapy versus old school therapy, but we can do a statistical cross-trial analysis comparing comprehensive quadruple therapy to old school conventional therapy with an ACE and a beta. And if you do this imaginary trial statistically, you find 6.3 years of life saved, making this truly a new therapeutic standard. And as we mentioned, it's not just in outpatients. Inpatient GDMT is important. Observational study after observational study shows us that those patients for whom medications are not 
started or who have been discontinued do worse long term. There's an increased risk of readmission, short, intermediate, and long-term mortality. There's decreased medication adherence and persistence. There's substantially increased likelihood of never being optimized. And most importantly for us who care for these patients in the hospital, it's missing out on a teachable moment. Don't have a missed opportunity. Start these medications. And remember, there is no time for delay. If you look at when the survival curves separate, after initiation of therapy, you see in the figure on the left from Secubitril Valsartan, benefit is seen after eight weeks. If you look at Dapagliflozin, that's the figure on the right. Benefit is seen after four weeks. So when should you start these medications? Yesterday. And if we then think about what are the strategies that we can use to improve transitions of care, well, we have to contrast theory versus practice. And Dr. Butler showed you the findings of this classic study in his presentation, where you look at cardiology and, uh, and primary care clinics, and you see who's not on optimal GDMT without an obvious contraindication. And you see, as shown here, that you have about two-thirds of patients not on an ACE-ARB. You have about two-thirds of patients not on a beta blocker, about one-third not on an MRA. And then if you look at the pie charts, it tells you, well, if you're on therapy, how many patients have achieved 50% or more of target dose? And you see that it's not great. Less than half of the ACE-ARB ARNIs and the beta blockers. So there's so much more we can do. What are the causes of this therapeutic inertia? Well, the patients may be reluctant to change, not have good adherence, have comorbidities. The healthcare professionals may have lack of awareness, time, experience, but hopefully webinars like this will solve that. And then there's systems issues of insurance, understaffed clinics, etc. So how can we do better? Or a better question maybe, is there evidence that we should do better? And how exciting that we now have the strong HF trial to give us some data to show that it's not just a theoretical benefit of aggressively ramping up GDMT. There is a demonstrated benefit in practice. Over a thousand patients hospitalized with heart failure, not receiving full dose GDMT, usual care versus high intensity care, defined as giving patients ACE, RNER, beta blocker, MRA, the study predated SGLT2 inhibitors. So giving these important pillars half optimal dose before discharge, and then frequent visits to promote optimization. What did they find? Not surprisingly, more patients in the high intensity group received target GDMT dosages at 90 days, 55% versus 2%, 49% versus 4%. 84% versus 46% for these three pillars. So that's not surprising, right? I mean, you try harder, you'll achieve more. But even more impressive, not only did the dosages go up, but the outcomes improved. More patients titrated to better therapy, felt better and lived longer. More often class one, two, 83% versus 67%. Less likely to have death or heart failure hospitalization at 180 days, 15% versus 23%. An 8% absolute risk reduction, absolute, with just trying harder to get patients on good therapies. Extraordinarily, this study was terminated early due to this larger than expected difference in groups. It was felt that withholding intensive treatment would be unethical to continue the trial. That's really quite powerful, isn't it? And we should think about our 
own patients that way. It would be unethical not to try this in your patients. So what's my approach to inpatient GDMT? Well, if I have a patient admitted with decompensated heart failure, they're pretty much going to start the MRA off the bat because I want the potassium sparing properties to offset the hypokalemia of loop diuresis because no one likes swallowing those potassium horse pills anyway. And then if they're not already on it, so cubitrovalsartan followed by the SGLT2 inhibitor because these will offer acute hemodynamic benefit of afterload reduction, augmented diuresis. And then if the beta blocker was stopped once they're decongested, start the low-dose beta blocker. They will be on the four pillars before discharge. And then as an outpatient, titrate stuff every few weeks, tolerated as tolerated based on symptoms, heart rate, blood pressure, potassium, creatinine, as little as eight weeks later with the beauty of telehealth conferencing, you can have your patients on the best therapy. Remember when it comes to transition to discharge diuretics, aim to be a little more aggressive in the hospital than you will be at home because patients probably won't follow the same strict salt and fluid restriction at home. You're going to watch them for 24 hours on an oral regimen. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, I have many rules in life, and one of them is if you're 500 cc's negative in the hospital, you will be even at home. Rescue diuretic plans are great for patients. Some patients find these empowering. Some patients find them stressful. Know your patient. But for many patients, if you can offer them a plan triggered by changes in weight or sentinel heart failure symptoms, increase the dose or frequency of the loop, add a thiazide, call you to let you know they feel empowered. And then use those 24 hours while you're watching them on an oral diuretic to figure out how much potassium they're going to need based on what their potassium's been and how much MRA, RNA you have added to their regimen. An early discharge follow-up is key because 25% of patients with heart failure are readmitted within 30 days of discharge. A phone call is great two to three days after discharge to close the loop. They understand their meds, how are their symptoms, and then at that first clinic visit, which would be about seven to 14 days later, focus on their comorbidities that might have been precipitants or triggers, confirm their meds, check the labs to see if you predicted right for their potassium repletion and their loop diuretic dose. Because ultimately the patient is at the center of team-based care and heart failure. We think about the role of the primary care clinicians, the family and the caregivers and the community resources, all of us working together to keep our patients out of the hospital feeling as good as possible for as long as possible. And so that brings us now to our assessment. We're going to go back through the questions that Dr. Butler covered at the start of the talk, and let's see how we do now. Well, thank you both for that excellent presentation. We've had a number of questions come in from our learners, and so we're going to do our best to get to as many as possible. So the first question is from Katerina. Why would we not optimize the meds the patient is already on before adding on additional new meds? Yeah, so great question. Uh, so there are now with these four drugs, four different pathways that are associated with heart failure progression. And it will be great for everybody to be on all the four pathway modulation at the doses that are recommended. But we realize that sometimes with age, blood pressure, potassium, creatinine, whatever, that not everybody may be able to get to all the, the doses. So it is better 
to at least have some degree of block uh, uh, modulation of all the pathways rather than getting maximum blockade of one pathway and leaving the other pathway completely unattended and open for deleterious effects. So the reason to not optimize the doses of one drug before you start the other drug is that you want some degree of coverage with all of these four agents. Now, remember, with SGLT2 inhibitor, there is no dose, right? It's 10 milligrams. MRA, there is sort of no dose. 25 milligrams of spironolactone is good enough. But with Arnie and with beta blocker, yes, the doses are an issue. So, for instance, when I was mentioning things like very CGWAT, your point is very correct. At first, we need to optimize the foundational therapy. But within the four foundational therapy, it is better to at least have something on board across all the four agents before we go up on the dose. Okay, excellent. And so the next question is, what about geriatric patients? Can you discuss if there's a continued benefit in the elderly or long-term care patients? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great point because you have to figure out the whether the clinical trials apply to the patient sitting in front of you in clinic. Uh, and I think the cautionary tale, I think the mineralocorticoid antagonists are a really nice cautionary tale about that. We have the Rawls trial that came out in 1999 showing how amazing it was. And then you had this really fascinating observational study published in the New England Journal in 2004 saying what happens to elderly people in Canada before and after the Rawls trial is published. Let's just look at how many prescriptions there are for spironolactone, how many hyperkalemia hospitalizations, how many hyperkalemia deaths. And lo and behold, a few years after publication of the Rawls trial, you see prescriptions go up, but so did deaths and hospitalizations. So what's the cautionary tale here? You need to look not just at the, at the, at the uh, sound bite of the clinical trial, but at the fine print in the sense that specifically with mineralocorticoid antagonists, you need to think about is your patient's EGFR appropriate and the guidelines say it should be greater than 30. And is the potassium appropriate? Guidelines say less than five. And are you monitoring the potassium appro appropriately? I think that approach applies to all of these medications. We know elderly patients are more prone to orthostasis and more prone to renal dysfunction. So I think you need to give your patients a try as we have to extrapolate the data from clinical trials in a sense in this data-free zone, but you have a low threshold to pull back in the case of intolerance if they have it. So there's always a role for clinical judgment when you're treating these patients. Okay, great. So our next question is, when is it not advised to give an MRA? So again, you know, uh, there is there are medical contraindications. So generally speaking, EGFR less than 30, the, that's a contraindication and serum potassium level, people argue, and there's a little bit of a comfort level there. So uh, the technically speaking, you're supposed to withheld the therapy for potassium more than six, half the dose for potassium between 5.5 and six, and watch carefully if it's between 5 and 5.5. Now, that's theoretical. Do We do have concerns that some people with lower GFR, they may shoot up pretty fast. Some people who live far away or maybe not have the social support to come back for frequent testing or home health is not available, that people may have a little bit of a lower threshold. So it's a little bit of uh, individualization based on their uh, renal function, their biology, as well as the social circumstances as well. So GFR less than 30 is definitely 
likely a contraindication. Potassium, you know, different patient, different clinicians have different threshold, but I would say hovering somewhere between 5.3 and 5.5 is where you should be really cautious. Okay, thank you. Our next question is, if a patient has had an ACE, ARB, or ARNI held due to acute kidney injury, what criteria would be used to reintroduce the held therapy, and when is it best to reintroduce the medication? This is, it's really, there's no cut and dried answer to that question. I wish I could give you a, if the EGFR is this, do this, if the EGR bar is that, do that. But let's think about what we know. We know that the bump in creatinine that occurs when you start a RAS inhibitor or an SGLT2 inhibitor is not a clinically relevant. In clinical trials, a bump in creatinine of 0.3 mg per deciliter is termed worsening renal function. I can't stand that term because it really is just a bump in creatinine. So reorient it in your mind, it's a bump in creatinine. And we know in clinical trials, when you start these agents, if you have a bump in creatinine, it's clinically meaningless. The benefit of the medication is so great that the bump in creatinine doesn't mean anything. And we know that there is an expected bump with SGLT2 inhibitors that then goes away. And overall, we know it's good for kidney staph, the CKD. But what do you do when the patient's sitting in front of you? Okay, so they're in the hospital, they've diuresed, you're squeezing them dry, their creatinine's rising. Step number one is to look at the patient and say, why is their creatinine rising? It's either rising because you dried them out too much it's driving because they're in incipient cardiogenic shock and they're having poor perfusion, right? The Foley is the poor man's swan. The creatinine is the canary in the coal mine. It's going to tell you what's going on maybe before any other organ. Or is it just, you know, they're redistributing because you diuresed them really quickly. Which of those three options is it? So you have to look at the patient to decide. And sometimes your physical exam will tell you. Sometimes tincture of time will tell you. I'm going to back off on diuresis for a day and see what happens. The next day they feel great. Their exam's great. Their creatinine's better. Or they feel horrible. Their exam's worse and their creatinine's worse. So look at the patient's exam. Look at their exam after tincture of time. And sometimes, if they're really in a bad way, you need a PA catheter to sort it out. I don't know if they're wet or dry. I don't know if their index is okay or not. So the bottom line is, say you have that patient, but a little bump, you backed off the kidney function. Now the kidney function's plateauing or improving. Stick to your guns. Remember the importance of these medicines. Take a deep breath and start it, because one of two things will happen. Their kidneys will be stable or their kidneys will continue to get worse. The patient will tell you what the right thing is. If it's a tiny bump in creatinine, 0.3 mg per deciliter, they feel amazing, their exam remains amazing, their blood pressure is fine, hold firm to your convictions and then check their creatinine in a week or two. If they don't look great, obviously you need to do more. So I think it's not the number, it's the context that it's the company that number keeps. Okay, perfect. So our next question is, what about patients with HEF-PEF? Do they need all four agents? Yeah, so there's a little bit of a historical construct here because technically speaking, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or at least the way we think about it right now, is ejection fraction greater than 50%. But the traditional trials for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction was done in patients with EF less than 40%. And because we did not want a gap in evidence, 
when we started doing the HEFPEF trials, we included all patients with EF greater than 40%, not, not only limiting to greater than 50%. But we have a plethora of data from secondary analyses, you know, dichotomizing the patients between 40 and 50 and over 50%. And then there's a lot of uh, observational data as well that also informs our decision making. So putting all of those, uh, 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 you know, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction trials, mildly reduced ejection fraction, observational data, all of that together, the way the guidelines have synthesized uh, is that the same quadruple therapy uh, seems to be beneficial for patients with heart failure and mildly reduced ejection fraction. So that is between the EF of 30, 40 to 50%. Uh, beta blockers really are not doing much uh, in terms of the benefit over 50%, but that doesn't mean that the beta blockers are contraindicated. So if you want to give beta blocker to somebody post MI or angina or for other reason, that's fine. But don't give it for HEF-PEF because HEF-PEF uh, does not tend to, to benefit. Uh, and then the ARNI benefit sort of goes up to an EF of, of 60%. So it starts getting a little bit complicated that we have definitive proof for SGLT2 inhibitor benefit across the ejection fraction, even over 60%. Uh, ARNI beta block, uh, ARNI MRA and SGLT2 between uh, uh, 50 and 60, and then the quadruple therapy less than 50. So I have a rule of thumb, which is not what the guidelines are saying. This is just my, you know, I, I, I follow uh, Dr. Kittleson's Twitter. So now I have my own set of rules. So my rule is, um, let's just cut it at 55%. If it's less than 55%, give quadruple therapy. If it's more than 55%, give an SGLT2 inhibitor. And let's wait for the MRA trials that are coming out and we'll see more. Fantastic. So for a patient with orthostasis, which therapy from the GDMT would you recommend to focus on if they aren't able to tolerate all four? Okay, I like this question. Orthostasis. Number one, is it symptomatic? Because I have many patients who run around with HEFREF and a systolic blood pressure of 88 who feel like a million bucks. So I actually, this is going to sound a little controversial. I don't tell my patients to check their blood pressure at home. I don't want them getting freaked out by numbers that don't mean anything. If you feel poorly, yes, I want to know what it is. If we're having a telehealth visit, I want to know what it is before the visit. Do not check your blood pressure every day if you feel like a million bucks. Number one, is it symptomatic? If it's not symptomatic, creatinine's fine, your NYHA class one to two, live your life, don't care about the numbers. Now, what about the other patient? The patient, every time they stand up, they feel like they might fall over, and oh, their systolic is, you know, 78, 88 when they stand up, or maybe it's 98, but it's clearly too low for them. They have symptomatic orthostasis. What's the strategy? Okay, we know we've got the four pillars. In that situation, that to me is one of the only reasons besides cost to pick an ACE inhibitor over an ARNI. Why? I can slip in a once-daily ACE inhibitor, Lisinopril 2.5, QHS. Stick it in there at bedtime. They'll barely know the difference. The peak effect of the orthostasis will be why they're asleep anyway, and they'll still get some benefit. For the beta blocker, I will like to use metoprolol sustained release. Again, it doesn't have those alpha blocking properties of the carbidolol, so maybe less likely to cause hypotension. And I can slip in 12.5 at bedtime, less likely to have an effect. And then the MRA, super low dose, again, once a day, bedtime, and the SGLT2 inhibitor. But if I'm starting and prioritizing, I do still start them in a stepwise fashion. I, you know, there's a lot of talk of simultaneous versus rapid sequence initiation. A lot of experts out there on both camps. In my personal interactions with patients, I find rapid sequence to be better than simultaneous only because 
Every time you give a patient a medicine, you're entering into a contract with them of trust, right? I'm going to give this mysterious pill to you. You're going to take it and nothing bad's going to happen to you. But if I start four pills at once and they don't feel good, I don't know which one was the culprit. They don't know which one's in the culprit. I think I lose a little bit of trust and credibility. That's why I like the rapid sequence as opposed to simultaneous. So, and if I'm doing that rapid sequence, I do go in the order of the ARNI, beta blocker, MRA, SGLT2 inhibitor in most cases. If someone I think is particularly tenuous with congestion, a little on the teetering on the edge of decompensation, I might do the ARNI, MRA, SGLT2 inhibitor first, because they all have acute hemodynamic benefit and quality of life improvement. And then once they're better compensated, because I've afterload reduced them and I've diuresed them, I'll slip in the beta blocker last. But think about an orthostatic patients, maybe they just can't tolerate AM meds and you want to do once daily things you can give at bedtime. And if I may just quickly add one thing, both SGLT2 inhibitors and ARNI have diuretic properties also. So just make sure that somebody's not intravascularly depleted and before changing a lot of medicines, just cutting down the diuretic may also help you a little bit. And that's such a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's so empowering to the patient. You're doing so much better. We don't even need this loop diuretic at such high doses. Okay, great. So Dr. Butler, I think this is a good question for you. Where does their caraguat and iron fit into the line of therapy as far as prioritization? Yeah, so iron deficiency is a, is a sort of, you can think about it as a disease in itself and has nothing to do with GDMT sequencing. So I think that all patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, we do know from an epidemiologic perspective that heart failure with preserved ejection fraction patients also have the same degree of iron deficiency, but we don't have the clinical trials that iron repletion will benefit HEF-PEF patients just yet. But for HEF-REF, with all of the data that has come out, I think that all patients should be assessed for iron deficiency. And if they have iron deficiency, should be repleted regardless of what you're doing with the rest of the GDMT. As far as the very CGWAD data are concerned, that trial currently, the data that we have is only in worsening heart failure patients. So it's not a standard foundational therapy. You still give the foundational therapy. But if somebody is running into trouble despite the foundational therapy, then you have very CGWAD. Is there any reason to consider very CGWAT in all heart failure patients like SGLT2 inhibitor, like ARNI? Well, from a pathophysiologic perspective, it makes sense, but we need the data. And that trial in non-hospitalized, non-worsening heart failure patient is ongoing, but, but that trial has not completed yet. Okay. I think we have enough time for maybe one or two more questions. So this question is, some PCPs are reluctant to optimize GDMT due to lack of comfort with managing these medications and or they defer to cardiology. What are some suggestions to help our PCPs become more comfortable with managing these patients? You know, gosh, it's so hard to be a PCP. It is so hard. I feel so lucky to be a cardiologist, a heart failure cardiologist. I don't have to know a lot. I just have to know. But the, the, the generalist knows um, nothing about everything, and the specialist knows everything about nothing. I, I think a more accurate aphorism would be that the generalist has to know everything about everything, and the specialist gets to pick and choose what they really care about. I mean, God bless our primary care practitioners. So what I would say is it, it really does come down to comfort and there can be a collaborative a, a relationship where I, I think remembering that asymptomatic hypotension is nothing to fear, a small bump in creatinine is nothing to fear. 
it makes will perhaps be empowering. I think giving yourself permission to try it on a few patients. And if you things go well, then you gain that experience. It helps you do it in more patients or to have your favorite cardiologist, you know, you phone a friend, phone your cardiologist for your lifeline for advice on how you're doing. I think a lot of us as cardiologists have those relationships with internists and primary care specialists to get a sense of, of having that collaborative multidisciplinary care. Well, thank you very much to both of you for an excellent presentation and an excellent Q&A session. And to our learners, we thank you as well. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by University of Cincinnati in partnership with Clinical Care Options, LLC, and is supported by educational grants from Boringer Engelheim Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.